Let's pray before we consider this text this morning. Father, we come to you with gratitude. You have given us your word. You have revealed yourself. You have, you have come down into this world in Christ, and you have delivered such good news. We pray that we would hear it, that your spirit would make it known to us, that your spirit would work through any boundaries that exist between us and the good news of, of Christ, and uh, that it would pierce our hearts and awaken us to you, um, that we would grow closer to you. If we don't know Jesus, that we would uh, come to faith that we would see and believe and receive. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, I, I don't know about you guys, but I watched a lot of news this past week. And the reason I watched a lot of news is because there was a lot of stuff happening. We had a bit of a weather crisis in our state and even, even more so to our south. Um, and so, you know, anytime there's like a crisis, we get attuned to the news. So, for example, um, last March, when COVID was hitting our shores, I was watching the news pretty closely, wanted to know what was going on. During times of war, we watch the news. During times of crisis, it's what we do. We get fixed. We get attuned um, to the news. Now, John's claim in this gospel has been that Christianity is not primarily a teaching, although it is that. But more fundamentally, it's news. It's good news. That's what Jesus is offering. It's not a teaching that we must do. It's good news that's been done on our behalf. That's the, that's the core of the Christian message. That's what the gospel literally means, good news. That's what it is. And every week, we try to remind ourselves, teach ourselves, preach to ourselves through the songs, through the liturgy, through the sermon, through the sacrament of this good news. We want to remind ourselves of it. And let me suggest to you, if you're not attuned to that news, it's because you don't believe the, the soul crisis that you have. You don't believe the desperate need that you have for Christ. Now, Lent, we're in the season of Lent, which is a time of, of reckoning with our own sin, fallenness, brokenness, our own mortality, right? The Ash Wednesday, we put ashes on our forehead to remind us we came from the dust, to dust we return. It's a time of reckoning with our sin. It's a time of reckoning with the, the, the truth that, that our sin has, has incited the judgment of God that there will be a day of accounting for how we've lived our lives. And that will be a, a terrifying day. Now, I start talking about sin and judgment, and you're thinking, man, this, is, this seems, feels a little outdated, this language. It's not language that we are comfortable with. But look, let me suggest to you, we've done a pretty good job, like in our culture, of getting God out of the picture. We, he's sort of, fun, we're kind of all practical atheists, Functionally, we live as though God does not exist, but we've not gotten the, rid of the idea of judgment. Um, I think the most prominent form of future judgment that we talk about as a culture, and it came up this week, is global warming, right? 
that there's judgment. It's not just like this is what's happening. It's this will destroy the earth. Judgment is coming. The way that we have treated the earth has incited a, a judgment from, from the earth against us. And in decades, maybe even shorter, we're, there's going to be massive damage to our planet. Now, I'm not dismissing that at all. My only point is to say, even though we've gotten rid of the idea of God, we still have the idea of judgment. Think about the stories, all the dystopian stories that, that we read and we, the movies that we watch that are these dystopian tales in the last 30, 40 years. We believe judgment is coming, something bad, something apocalyptic is in our future. But not only on a global scale, even individually, we have trouble reckoning with our own mistakes, with our own sins, with our own shortcomings. Tim Keller, he's been a pastor for decades, and he says that in, in his decades of ministry, there's one consistent theme in his pastoral counseling, and it's this. As people reach the end of their lives, as they have maybe two decades, maybe one decade left of life, the thing that comes to the fore of their minds is a, is a feeling of regret of shortcoming. I should have loved more. I should have not made these bad decisions. I should have not, I should have served more. I should have given myself up more, right? Regret. I mean, I, I don't know about you. Ha, do you ever wake up in the middle of the night with soul fear, this deep impending sense that something is not right? So here's my question. What if what we think is true, as evidenced by our stories we tell and the feelings we feel in, in the middle of the night, what if what we think is true actually is true? That there is a judgment coming. That's what the scriptures claim. What if all of our bad decisions pile up one upon another and, they, and we're held accountable for them? Well, we would be attuned to news of a way out, wouldn't we? This woman that Jesus encounters at the well, she's keenly aware of the crisis in her life. Keenly aware. And therefore, and this is a recurring theme in John's gospel, she hears, she's attuned to the news that Jesus brings her. And we're going we're gonna to look at that in just, in just a moment. Um, so, the three considerations uh, that we have this morning, three points, three headings. One is the woman's boundaries. So the woman has, there, there are, I'll explain it more in a second, but there are a lot of boundaries that exist between this woman and Jesus. So we're going to explore those boundaries. Jesus's breakthrough of those boundaries. Jesus's breakthrough. And then evangelistic expansion. That's the third point. So woman's boundaries. Uh, Jesus' breakthrough and evangelistic expansion. So first, uh, the woman's boundaries. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, this woman, for a lot of reasons, is off limits to Jesus. She might as well have like caution tape wrapped all around her that says, back off, stay away. You don't want to come near me. Um, and there's three, there's three boundaries, three layers that she has. First, is that she's a woman. And I realize this sounds offensive, but in biblical times, perspectives on women evolved. They weren't static. But at this point in time, women were not regarded highly. In fact, 
um, they were considered not even worth, uh, their testimony wasn't valid in court, for example, along with the testimony of children and the disabled and the mute, um, no, could not testify in court. They were to remain quiet in public. Men were to, especially rabbis, were to have no interactions with them. A rabbi he wasn't even to have much interaction with his own wife. He was, it was considered that the rabbi should spend most of his time studying the scriptures, studying the Torah, even if it was to the neglect of his spouse. And so there's this, there's this gender uh, boundary that exists between Jesus, a rabbi, or a rabbi teacher, and, and this woman. And then the second boundary is um, the fact that she's a Samaritan. Divisions run deep between Jew and Samaritan. We could talk a lot about this, but we'll, I'll try to keep it brief. Remember King Saul, King David, King Solomon, United Kingdom. The, there was a single kingdom of, of all the tribes of Israel. Solomon's son, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, there's a, there's a division. The kingdom divides into north and south. And the Samaritans are part of this northern kingdom. Well, the northern kingdom was destroyed in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were one of the most brutal empires to ever sweep across the earth. And what they did is they, they wanted to disorient, uh, discombobulate the, the people that they conquered. And so what they would do is they would send people of their conquered areas, export them to other towns across their empire, and they would import foreigners into the town. And so there would eventually be a cross-pollination and, and the culture of that northern kingdom would get compromised religiously. And so Samaritans brought in pagan elements uh, ethnically. So their, their DNA was deemed compromised. Um, and so there, there, there was this deep division. Not only that, and we'll see this in a second, because the northern kingdom needed a place to worship that didn't require them to go be near their neighbors to the south, the Jews, they built their own temple. So they had a, a special place of worship for, them, for themselves. And so there's all these uh, divisions that existed between these, the, the Jews and the Samaritans. And Jesus, being a Jew, is to have no dealings with this woman who's a Samaritan. Layer number three for this woman. So she's a woman, she's a Samaritan, and then thirdly, she is an outcast among outcasts. If the Samaritans are on the margins, she's on the margin of those on the margins. She's, she's and here's why. We'll, we'll see it in a second, exactly why, but here's how we know this. She's coming to the well at noon, which is not when you go to the well unless you're an outcast and nobody else is there so you don't have to deal, have any dealings with anybody else because normally you'd come to the well in the morning for the day or you come at the end of the day in the evening. But she's showing up to this well because she's not even welcomed in her own, among her own people, the Samaritans. So there's all these boundaries. She, she's in sort of a forever quarantine, this Samaritan woman. But there's even a big, uh, there's, Here's the biggest boundary. You ready for this? So this, I guess you call this the fourth, the fourth boundary. And Leslie Newbegin says it like this. This woman 
is standing on the brink of a much deeper gulf than that which divides Jew from Samaritan. It's the gulf between him who is the author of life and the world which is thirsty for that life. That's the big divide. And get this, every one of us in this room shares that divide with this woman. We're more like her than we are like Jesus. This huge gulf between us and God. Now here's the thing, we've said this before, and we've talked about this in the last few weeks. The arrival of Jesus is a paradigm buster. The old ways don't, the old structures don't support Jesus' arrival. Remember he described himself like new wine and old wineskins? Like the old ways, the old traditions, the old, old structures, they can't contain the new wine because the new wine expands and it bursts through the old. And Jesus is, is he's going to shatter some of these boundaries, as we'll see in just a moment. I mean, think, think about this. Why did he choose 12 disciples? Why 12? Because of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Jew and Samaritan, the, the 12 tribes have been divided for hundreds of years, And now all of a sudden, Jesus is walking around with these 12 guys. It's a little picture. He's uniting the clans. He's bringing the tribes together. And so we're going to see, we're going to see that here. So this brings us to our second point, Jesus' breakthrough. So Jesus is sitting. It's the heat of the day. He's exhausted. He's hot. He asks for a drink. And the woman responds, probably a bit playfully, how is it? that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a Samaritan. Like, she gets the rules of interaction. She knows, this is, she knows this is not, like, proper. She knows he's a Jew. And she knows that this is not a proper interaction according kind of the standards of the day. And Jesus says in verse 10, If you only knew, you could have asked, and I would have given you living water. And she's perplexed. A bit like Nicodemus a few weeks ago in his inter- encounter with Jesus. She's perplexed. She, you see, Jesus is taking the conversation to like a heavenly plane, and she's content to kind of keep it at an earthly plane. And, you know, living water, that, what that meant was flowing water, right? They're at a well, and that's sort of stagnant, stationary, non-flowing water. But the water from a stream, the fresh water, the purest water, the best water, that was living water because it was moving, it was acting, it was bubbling, it was babbling. It's, that's, that's what living water was. So she's thinking in those terms. And then Jesus continues. Look at verse 14. Whoever drinks the water I give will never, never be thirsty again. And then it gets even better. Not only that, but the water I will give will spring up to a well of eternal life. Now this is, this is important. Think back to our encounter, Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. The, the contrast is pretty stark. Nicodemus was at the center. He was in the, in, the, in the halls of power. He was educated. He was powerful. And yet, he doesn't seem to get it. This woman is loaded with boundaries that would prevent her from kind of getting it. And yet, she gets it. She does what we almost do, and this is what she says. She asks Jesus to give her what only Jesus can give. Verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
Give me what you have to offer. She asks for what Jesus has. Okay. Now, Jesus then takes the conversation in a direction that may seem a little mysterious to us or kind of off course. He's like veering things off course, it seems, when he starts asking about her husband. And she says, uh, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right, you've had five and the, the man that you're now sleeping with is not your husband. Remember what we said about Jesus's eyes, that he knows the heart of man, that he has these searching eyes they can look and they see straight into us, all the way down. Jesus's, at a quick glance, can understand us better than we can understand ourselves, infinitely better than we can understand ourselves. Even after a whole life of, of introspection, trying to understand, he sees straight in. And he understands, he knows what's going on. He knows that her soul has a fountain that it has been coming to for its sustenance. And the fountain is men, it appears, right? She's got all this husbands. He says, and she says, um, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, that's right, you have five. And the person that you're with now is not your husband. And now all of a sudden we get why she's an outcast among outcasts. Because she has been living um, a promiscuous life, taboo in this ancient Samaritan culture. And so she's cast aside. In this, in this age, you could have no more than, th the tradition was you could have no more than three husbands, no matter, uh, no matter the cause. Even lawful divorces, no more than three. That was the rule. She has had five and now there's a sixth that she's, person that she's with. And so Jesus sees into her and she's cut to the heart. Verse 19, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. You, you, you've given me a prophetic word. You know my life and you don't even know, but you've, you've seen, you've seen the heart of me. He sees her all the way down to who she is at her core. And as we've said, this is a season of Lent. It's a time of reckoning with who we are. My, my question is this. Do you, as you've begun to kind of ponder your own uh, your own sin, your own frailty, the fountains that you seek for your own soul uh, thirst that are not Christ. As you've reckoned with yourself, do you like what you see? Do you like what you see? Do you like what you're finding? Remember, Jesus, he knows all these things. He, see, he knows them before we can even find them and articulate them. He sees all the way down. And what do you do? Like, what do you do when you're confronted with the worst of you? You sort of suppress it. You deny it. You want to sort of get it out of your mind. Jesus sees all the way down and he receives. He receives. I mean, we live in the, the internet age, which is a really, I think, unique time. Everybody thinks they live in a unique time, but it, it, it does seem unique. Our worst moments can be captured on a phone or whatever it is, and they can be with us for the rest of our lives. I mean, let me just mention a few. Star Wars kid. Remember? Do you remember uh, Boom Goes the Dynamite? Worst moment for these people. And it's just, it's sort of, we all know it. We all, we've seen it. We can go look at it in five clicks of a button. There was a story in the New York Times about, um, it was a very troubling and difficult to read story about 
um, these porn sites that have not done a good job of getting rid of things and these worst moments in these at the time, young girls who are manipulated or cajoled into some sort of something finds its way onto the World Wide Web and it never goes away. Decades go by. It's still there. It's still there. It's always there. It gets brought down and then it pops up again. The worst moment of your life, a very private moment of your life, is there for all to see for the rest of your life. Right? Can, can you imagine the shame? associated with that? Well, this woman feels that shame. She's been ostracized. She's in that forever quarantine. Let's see where she turns. She's been confronted with the truth of her soul. Where does she turn? What does she do? Does she deny? Does she suppress? Well, let's see what she does. Verse 20. Look at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on Mount Gerizim, but you worship on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. Where should we worship? That's her question. Where should we worship? We worship in one place, you worship in another. Which is the, where's the temple? Where's the temple supposed to be? And you may think, whoa, she's trying to change the subject here. I don't think she is. See, she's been confronted by a, by a prophet And her confrontation by a prophet who sees all the way into her drives her to her need for a priest. I mean, the temple, more than anything, is associated with what? Sacrifice. Atonement of sins. So her encounter with this prophetic word, Jesus seeing all the way into her, has pushed her to the question of, where can I find atonement? Is it true that this temple has no value? At Gerizim. Do I need to go to Jerusalem? It's not, this, this question is not a diversion. It's an outflow of a prophetic encounter with God, with Jesus. Now it's true, there is a big debate between the Samaritans and the Jews over the proper place of worship. But this is instructive for us. Our encounter with our sin, no matter how distasteful that encounter is, should always drive us to Jesus, to the, to the temple, to atonement, to Christ, and the mercy that he provides. Dane Ortland says this. He says, fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We're We are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as our specific sins and failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. Like this woman here, the Samaritan woman, we've got caution tape around us. We've got a myriad of boundaries that exist between us and Christ. And what Jesus says, he's going to say it in a couple of chapters, John chapter 6. He says, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Come to Jesus. That's it. He receives. He will not cast out. He says, I will never cast out. I won't. Well, the third point is evangelistic expansion. 
So this woman and Jesus have boundaries. Jesus breaks through all of those boundaries, which leads to evangelistic expansion. This woman can't help but share this refreshing, reviving encounter with Jesus. She's been made more alive as a result of this. And here's the thing. She's an outcast. She's not, she's not supposed to be talking to people in her community. This is why she's showing up at the well at noon. And she goes on this evangelistic crusade within her community. And get this. It's successful. The, the, the lady on the margin of the margins shares this encounter with Jesus and the community responds positively. And this is, this is interesting. In the, verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of her testimony. Right? She's successful. Now, her faith is not complete. In fact, we, she hasn't even seen the great atonement that is offered for her in the work of Christ. So it's, it's a budding faith, right? But nonetheless, her faith is directed towards the right thing. It's directed towards the right object. It's directed to Jesus. And there's a powerful result, consequence, fruit of that faith, of that newfound faith that she has. And here's the thing. This is interesting. John wants us to see this. The last encounter that we had with Jesus encountering somebody was with Nicodemus. That was the last exchange that we had. And, and John wants us to say, look, remember Nicodemus? It, it wasn't even clear how he responded, right? And remember, remember Nicodemus? He was at the center. He was educated. He had been in the seminary. He had all the training. He had the power. And yet he missed it. He came in dark, right? And he was in the dark by the end of it. We don't see that positive response. She came in the light of day at noon, the brightest moment in the day, and she gets it. And here's the thing. She had not been to seminary. She, was, she, she wasn't even, I mean, she was so far out of, she was worse than a Gentile because she was a compromised member of, the, of Israel, which was worse than a Jew. She's on the outs. You could not find a more disqualified person to understand Jesus. And yet, John tells us, she gets it, and she goes on a successful uh, evangelistic crusade as a result. So let me ask, what is your go-to fountain? What is your, what, what is your soul long for? What is your soul thirst for? Is it family bonds? Is it, is it romance? Is it work success? Is it education? Is it the love of your children? There are all sorts of fountains, some good, some not so good. But to the extent that they supplant the fountain of life, Jesus, they're bad. They have destructive effects on our lives. And we all have these little mini fountains that we come to that don't, they just sort of, they're little drips and we come back and we keep thirsting. We keep thirsting. They don't satisfy us in any enduring way. And St. Augustine, I think, was on to something because he said that the heart's desires are infinite and therefore they can't be satisfied. Our hearts cannot be satisfied by any finite thing. 
And yet the fountains of this world that we go to for our heart's delight are all finite. Your infinite heart can't rest there. And that's why St. Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, in God. And that's what Jesus is saying. I have, I have the water that, you're so, that you never thirst again. It's here. It's available. Just come to me. Receive it. And this is, this is the beauty of this God, that he came down and he blasted his way through every barrier, every boundary that existed between, between us and God. We have seen and we have beheld his glory, the glory that we could not look upon. He was walking before us. In our midst, he crossed all sorts of boundaries. And this is really important. See, I'm, we note, noted all the boundaries, but this, Jesus in this story is more identified with the Samaritan woman than we might realize. Look at verse 1. What does it say is going, what, what is it, why is Jesus even out here in this Samarit, dirty Samaritan village? Why is he out there? Well, because... He's, he's kind of on the run because he's having success. He's drawing a crowd. People are coming to see his disciples baptized in the name of John, you know, John's baptism of repentance. They're doing this baptism. And the Jewish leadership have driven him out. He's a refugee, much like the Samaritan woman. See, he's identified with her. And that's how, that's how he connects us to himself, is through his identification with us. In chapters later, when Jesus is on the cross in John's gospel, he's going to cry out at noon, I thirst, right? He's parched. He's dying. He's pouring himself out for us. He's bridging the gulf that Newbigin talked about, this gulf between us who need life and him who offers it. He's bridging it. And get, get this, how is he bridging it? Life is being put to death so that we who are in death might have life. The, the, the one who has living water that if we drink from forever, thirsts so that we who are soul parched might have that living water. See what he's doing for us? That's what he came to do. You know, every week we, we tell this story of Christ's work on our behalf. And the question I, I want to ask is, is it, is it working on your heart? Is it softening your heart? Is it, is it making you more patient uh, with others, with your children, with your spouse, with your friends? The promise is that it will. As we receive, we become more loving towards our neighbor that we love because he first loved us. Now here's the thing, this is important, especially during the season of Lent where we sort of introspect and consider our own sin and our own brokenness. We are, like Dane Ortland said, we're filled, we, we are very good at constructing little boundaries that exist between us and Jesus. We got all these little boundaries. And we'll close with this, but this Dane Ortland again, he's riffing off of John Bunyan. He has this kind of imaginary dialogue that we have with God, with Christ, um, where we set up boundaries and Jesus just keeps breaking through them, breaking through them. So we say to ourselves, no, wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand, like, I've really messed up. 
in all kinds of ways, we say to ourselves, we say to Jesus, and Jesus says back to us, I know. You know, you know most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's a perversity down inside me that is hidden from everyone. And what does Jesus say? I know it all. I know it all. Better than you know yourselves. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. And Jesus says, I understand. But I don't know if I can break free from this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help, Jesus says. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time, Jesus says, then let me carry it. It's too much to bear, not for me, Jesus says. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards other. They're against you. Then I'm the, most, I'm the one most suited to forgive them, Jesus says. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner, the sooner you will get fed up with me. And then Jesus says what he says in John chapter 6, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sweet truths of your word uh, that Jesus came. He came not to bring judgment, but he came to bring grace and mercy and forgiveness and life and light. All the blessings, all the beauty, glory, and, and um, truth uh, that is in you is made available to us in Christ, that we get united to him. And we thank you that he crossed all these boundaries. We pray that you would help us believe that and be transformed by it, that we would have a, a love, a patience, a gentleness that is hard for the world to understand. And we ask for your spirit to give us these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.